finish without all this, didn't he? Just got into a boat, found a good bit of acoustics, and uh, away he went, all right? But uh, we get hitched up with all this stuff. So. Anyway, good. We're in the second of our preaching series on the subject of redemption, and um, it's based on this book here by um, Mike Wilkerson, uh, an excellent book, um, worth reading, but um, we're taking it chapter by chapter and preaching on the particular headings there. Today, as you will have seen in your bulletin, the title is How Long? And it's a cry to God. How long? How long, Lord? And um, we'll be dipping into um, Exodus, the end of Exodus 4, chapter 4 and 5 and 6. Okay, so we're just pulling out some verses uh, from there. Um, just by way of recap, really, what do you think of when you hear the, word, the words redeemed and redemption? Or, um, you know, I think in modern day usage, these words are mostly associated with paying back money, aren't they? Owed or, or pledged, um, to buy back, to make a single payment, to discharge an obligation. Uh, maybe to convert tokens into goods or cash. You may have had a book token at Christmas or an Amazon token, but what you do is you redeem it for goods, usually. Um, it goes up against your uh, account. Also, it, it can mean to make up for or be a compensating feature. Um, in Maybe in a particular difficult situation, we might say, but there is a redeeming feature, meaning something gets us off the hook. You know, it looked pretty grim, but there was a redeeming feature. So we, we do use the word like that. Interestingly, um, the dictionary definition, which I had a look at, includes the way we use those terms in a Christian context. Um, namely, to deliver from sin and damnation, purchase the freedom of a person, save from blame or rescue or reclaim save by ransom and when we hear that word ransom i think for many of us it will take us to the words of jesus recorded in mark 10 um, 45 where he's speaking to his disciples and he said for even the son of man came not to be served but to serve and give his life a ransom for many jesus paid a price to release us from sin and the condemnation of sin. And then in Galatians 3:13, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. He was made sin in our place that we might receive the righteousness of God. So redemption is very much at the heart of the gospel. Um, God redeemed us or redeems us so that as sinful people we can have fellowship with him, a holy God. And whilst our salvation is secure at the very moment we believe and receive Jesus as Lord and Saviour, and whilst at that point we become fully sons and daughters of the living God by adoption, um, nevertheless um, there is a process going on. There is a process that continues because the effects of sin in our lives and the effects of the, the sins of others upon us um, are often deep-rooted and take time 
to be washed from our lives. As Steve said last week, we are legally free, but functionally it can take time to live in the fullness of that freedom. I think we'd all say, there's more, there's more, there's more there, there's more um, to this gospel than I've experienced so far. So having saved us, God is at work to sanctify us. That's another biblical word, sanctification. And what it means is to make holy, to set apart for God. God is fashioning us so that we are more uh, holy in his sight and, and we're being set apart for him, conformed to the likeness of Christ. Paul reminds us of this process in 2 Corinthians chapter 3. It says... And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image, that's the image of Christ, from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. So you can see there it's a process. It doesn't all happen at conversion. There's a lot going on afterwards. So God has not only promise to save us and give us eternal life but also to redeem our lives from the effects of sin to deal with the baggage we use that word don't we we to deal with the baggage that we've 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 brought with us those things done to us and the things that we've have done by us the statistics of physical and sexual abuse are absolutely horrendous and um, it just seems in our day and age Almost every week somebody is being um, uh, brought to justice for um, sexual sins that were committed many, many, many years ago. Many people are coming forward and saying what terrible effects these things um, had in their lives. But also, as well as those, those uh, things done against us, um, the sexual abuse, there are addictions to alcohol, drugs and pornography and maybe much more and these are absolutely staggering the figures uh, often it's quoted how many an estimate of how many men they think are addicted to internet pornography and it's really horrendous and even um, Christian young men are struggling with it the problem is it's so easy years ago you had to go to the top shelf in the news agents to find that kind of material now, in the secrecy of your own room, you switch on your computer and you're in another world. You're in a fantasy world and it's just so easy. It's so easy. Well, even if you can't identify um, with those categories, um, there are problems and tragedies that occur in our lives that leave their marks. There are attitudes and habits that still dog our lives and hold us captive and impede our progress. Also there are times when our progress seems painfully slow and when we take steps to deal with an issue in our lives the problem can become worse. For example, just coming back to those addictions for a moment, someone who has been addicted to pornography and sought God for deliverance from it, trusting in the promises of God to set them free, absolutely right, um, the first thing he has to do is to tell his wife. Um, a disclosure is essential in the process uh, of getting free. And it's, it, so it will be, um, you know, it's inevitable. It will put an enormous strain on their relationship. And for a season, 
the man's problems could be multiplied rather than getting better. But it's a necessary step on the way to freedom and redemption. In delivering us from sin, God breaks the chains of slavery and beckons us to freedom. But faithful obedience can be very costly. He calls us to abandon everything that we've clung to in our sin. And it could be something that's brought us comfort. Even it's something that's given us meaning. And now God is calling us to abandon it. And pulling the hook out of the false comfort can be very, very painful. So as you know, we're looking um, as a model of redemption. We're looking at the exodus, God's deliverance of the Jews from slavery in Egypt. Uh, they've been there 400 years. When they entered Egypt, they were honoured guests because of Joseph. But as the years went on, the pharaohs that came to power knew nothing of Joseph. And, and they put these people into slavery. And God had heard their cries. At the burning bush, remember Moses fled from Egypt because he killed an Egyptian. Um, and he was looking after his father-in-law's sheep. And God appears to him in a burning bush. God declared to Moses that he would deliver his people sending him with a message and signs. And after much wrestling with God, do you remember, about the assignment, he said, this is great, but just don't send me. Send somebody else, please. Nevertheless, Moses went reluctantly with his brother Aaron to proclaim the message in Egypt to Pharaoh and demonstrate God's miraculous signs. But they went first to their people. No doubt to Moses' surprise, the people believed and bowed their heads in worship. Chapter 4, at the end of the chapter, verse 29. Then Moses and Aaron went and gathered together all the elders of the people of Israel. Aaron spoke all the words that the Lord had spoken to Moses and did the signs in the sight of the people. And the people believed. And when they heard that the Lord had visited the people of Israel and that he had seen their affliction... They bowed their heads and worshipped. Put yourself in the Israelites' place for a moment and imagine all those years of ruthless slavery, hoping against hope that God would deliver you. And finally, he announces that deliverance is at hand. All those years of crying out to God and he has heard and responded. He really is the God of Abraham who promised to deliver his people. It's, it's just worth noting, and, a, and uh, a, I think a, a wonder of the Bible, that, that right back in the, the days of Abraham, hundreds of years before this, when God was speaking to Abraham and, and, and telling him uh, what his future would be and what the, 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 his descendants would be, God says this, And as the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell on Abraham, and behold, um, dreadful... The, and, Behold, dreadful and dark darkness fell upon him. Then the Lord said to Abraham, Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs and will be servants there, and they will be afflicted for 400 years. But I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve, and afterwards they shall come out with great possessions. So there it is. God's promise has come true. The people must have been elated. And um, the time has finally come. Maybe they'd forgotten very quickly 
the might of Egypt and the power of life and death that Pharaoh had over them because the God of Abraham, Isaac and Jacob uh, was going to deliver them. But Pharaoh would have none of this, as we'll see. Here in the UK, having voted to leave the EU, many farmers are concerned that the immigrant workers who are key to their profitable production could be lost and hence their farms would cease to be viable. A genuine concern. But from Pharaoh's point of view, Moses' demands would not just be about letting a few immigrants leave his country, causing a little dip in his fortunes, but the destruction of the very means that has made him great. The glory of Egypt's kings, the pharaohs, was dis displayed in towering architecture of Egypt's cities. The 60-foot walls that encircled these cities, as well as the homes and the buildings that filled them, were made of bricks. And um, one of Pharaoh's pyramids required over 24 million bricks. A skilled brickmaker working at top speed could make at most 3,000 bricks a day, but he rarely met his quota, and all the while standing over him was a threatening taskmaster. So Moses takes this message from the Almighty God to, to Pharaoh, and he says, Thus says the Lord, this is the beginning of chapter 5, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, Let my people go, that they may hold a feast to me in the wilderness. Quite clearly, Pharaoh's fame was at risk. No wonder he responded mercilessly. We're not to miss the gravity of this confrontation. Pharaoh thinks he's God in Egypt and the master of the Hebrews. And he has control over their fate. So verse 2 he says, Who is the Lord that I should obey his voice and let Israel go? I do not know the Lord. Moreover, I will not let Israel go. So he's determined not to let them go. But he did not just refuse to let them go. He squeezed them harder. And verse 6 of chapter 5. The same day Pharaoh commanded the taskmasters of the people and their foremen, you shall no longer give the people straw to make bricks as in the past. Let them go and gather straw for themselves. But the number of bricks that they made in the past shall you, you shall impose on them. You shall no, by no means reduce it, for they are idle. Therefore they cry, let us go and offer sacrifice to our God. Let heavier work be laid on them, on the men, that they may labour at it and pay no regard to lying words. Pharaoh fought back and he struck hard. His intention was not simply to get more productivity out of the Hebrews because they weren't expected to make more bricks. It was to strike fear in their hearts and keep them busy so that they would not have the energy um, to entertain ideas of deliverance. So Pharaoh increased their toil, trying to persuade them that the things that Moses was telling them about God were a pack of lies. We see that it seemed to be working. In spite of the foreman pleading with Pharaoh for leniency, he re restated his harsh commands. This brought the people to despair and they blamed Moses and Aaron. Verse 20, they met Moses and Aaron who were waiting for them as they came from Pharaoh. And they said to them, 
the Lord look on you and judge because you've made us stink in the sight of Pharaoh and his servants and have put a sword in their hand to kill us. Yeah, you can understand that, can't you? What's more painful, to live without hope or to have a glimpse of hope only to have it dashed? Well, it was Moses' worst nightmare and he cried out to God in distress. Verse 22. Then Moses turned to the Lord and said, O Lord, why have you done evil to this people? Why did you ever send me? For since I came to Pharaoh to speak in your name, he has done evil to this people, and you have not delivered your people at all. All right. That was his worst nightmare. And um, although he appears bewildered and shaken in his faith, he directs his cry to God, calling him Lord or Adonai, which means master. So there was still a relationship there, acknowledging that God alone ultimately controls everything that happens. And to be fair to God here, um, Moses should, have not, should not have been surprised by Pharaoh's reaction because God told Moses from the burning bush that Pharaoh would not let the people go unless compelled by his mighty hand. So what does your picture of redemption look like? What's your picture of redemption? What is the basis of your faith that God is at work in your life? If our primary evidence is that God is at work is based on our circumstances, then our faith is strained and we become blinded by circumstances that fail to meet our expectations. God's picture of redemption is not always the one we've imagined. Let's look at the subject of, of um, salvation just for a moment. What was the evidence um, on which you took your stand, that we took our stand when we surrendered to Jesus and received God's free gift of eternal life? Was it our circumstances or events? Now they may have had, um, a, they may have been a factor. They may have got God may have got our attention by circumstances uh, and events. But um, or was it the truth about Jesus Christ expressed in the gospel? I suggest it was the latter, the revelation of God's mercy and grace in the gospel that brought us conviction of sin and an acknowledgement of a need of a saviour. We took God at his word, not the circumstances. We took God at his word. We believe God when he said that all who receive Jesus Christ as Lord and saviour will have eternal life. That was the basis of our faith. But God's promises are not just for salvation, but for this life. Uh, with its ups and downs, with its tragedies and disappointments. And when things get worse and God is silent, to believe that he has not abandoned us, that he has not changed, that his promises still hold, and he will bring us home rejoicing. Sadly, I've met some Christians who seemingly haven't been saved and baptised and added to the church, stumble over the fact that life has not worked out as they expected, as the way they think it should. They feel that 
God has, has dealt them a, a rough deal and they have issues with God and they perhaps withdraw from church and Christian things they somewhat disillusioned by it all it's almost as if they're saying to God as long as it works out like this I'll follow you uh, they may have even taken hold of some of God's promises but failed to appreciate that there can be considerable time delay in their fulfilment and in the meantime we have to trust that what God has said will come to pass and that he's still there and that he's still loving and he is still working his purposes out for us let's just take an example of a, a famous Old Testament verse that probably people will have given you or it may have been prayed over you it's Jeremiah 29 11 it says for I know the plans I have for you declares the Lord plans for welfare and not for evil to give you a future and a hope I'm sure many of you could quote that scripture it's very it's very a, a comforting scripture and uh, I'm sure many of you will have taken it to heart but particularly in old for Old Testament scriptures it's important to look at the context of the verse and what we have here is the Israelites in captivity in Babylon Nebuchadnezzar had taken the Israelites from Jerusalem into Babylon uh, they are exiles and Jeremiah the prophet sent them a letter to encourage them so when will God's promise of prosperity be fulfilled when God's welfare and so on when will these hopes be fulfilled well um, actually um, when we look at the, the previous verse we see that are actually a lifetime away 70 years away are these promises God did keep his promise and the exiles did return to Jerusalem but this is what the previous verse says for thus saith the Lord when 70 years are completed for Babylon I will visit you and I will fulfill to you my promise and bring you back to this place for I know the plans I have for you so it's important to look at the, the context and that the fulfillment of that promise was a considerable period in advance also when we look at the promises of blessing we must also look at the promises of hardships you remember Jesus speaking to his disciples told them frequently that they, they would be persecuted because of him they would face hardships they would face imprisonment and um, you know we live in a fallen world and there's a clash of kingdoms and there are thousands upon thousands of Christians around the world that are suffering for their faith at this time Mark 10 29 Jesus is responding to the disciples who were kind of boasting about how much they'd given up for Jesus and Jesus said truly I say to you there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or lands for my sake and for the gospel who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands wow that's great isn't it and we've experienced some of that we've got a family all around the world you know and those of us who had the privilege to travel into other countries wow we've got this family all around the world but then he goes on with persecutions and in the age to come eternal life Jesus said we have to embrace both 
both the blessings uh, and also the challenges and the persecution. Another important point to make here that it's not wrong to question God when we are hurting. Even to cry to him in anguish. An example of this is um, Psalm 13. In my Bible it's actually at, um, headed, How long, O Lord? And the psalmist says, How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I take counsel in my soul and have sorrow in my heart all day? How long shall my enemy be exalted over me? And so on. But then at the end, this is very important, he says, but I have trusted in your steadfast love. My heart shall rejoice in your salvation. I will sing to the Lord because he has dealt bountifully with me. So it's okay to cry out in anguish, but that anguish needs to be in faith. And of course, Jesus' cry from the cross illustrates this. One of the most um, well-known um, words in the New Testament. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Notice, it's not you, God, at a distance. It's my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And he was quoting Psalm 22. And uh, I'll read you um, part of that. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me from the words of my groaning? Oh my God, I cry by day, but you do not answer, and by night, but I find no rest. Yet you are holy, enthroned on the praises of Israel, in you our fathers trusted. They trusted and you delivered them. To you they cried and were rescued. To you they trusted. In you they trusted and were not put to shame. Jesus was not only quoting that psalm but was living it. The cup of God's wrath that he had prayed in the Garden of Gethsemane that might pass from him was now a reality. It was on him. Here we have the brutal honesty of unimaginable suffering but also the declaration uh, that God is holy and enthroned, meaning that he is powerful and that he is also faithful and trustworthy and will rescue him. So here again, it's possible on the one hand to cry out in anguish while at the same time cling to a promise of rescue. It's almost scandalous to think that Jesus continued trusting God who had permitted such suffering in spite of Jesus' prayers. In fact, the religious leaders who were there at the crucifixion mocked Jesus for his faith. He trusts in God. Let God deliver him now if he desires him. They sneered because, like we often do, they measured the trustworthiness of God by present circumstances. The writer to the Hebrews gives us a little insight into Jesus' thinking, his disposition, if you like, at this point, in Hebrews 12 and partway through verse 1, we read, Let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. God's at work. God is in this transforming work of redeeming us. And we you know, need to cooperate in this way. 
um, to lay aside every weight and, and the sin. But it goes on to say, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Jesus knew God's promises. Jesus knew God's word. He knew what was up ahead. Uh, not only was he there to be, would he be glorified, but also in his death, uh, he would bring many sons to glory, as the writer to the Hebrews says. People like you and me would be brought to salvation and become part of God's family and part of God's eternal kingdom. So Jesus knew the promises of God, even though uh, he was in terrible anguish. So what have we learned from the story of Israel's redemption? Firstly, that the path of walking free from our slavery, be it sin, our sin, or things done to us can be painful. And it may be that things get worse uh, before they get better. Here's um, an example from the book, just a little story. But I'll read it to you. This is about Peter. At that Christmas, a group from a church in Peter's hometown visited the mission to sing carols. Moved by how God had already begun to change his life, Peter asked the group if he could return with them to his hometown to be baptised in their church. In that church, with a few brothers that came along from the mission, Peter stood and gave his testimony. He told how God had reached down to rescue him from a life of drug addiction and pain. It was a time of great celebration. Sitting in the congregation was a policeman visiting the church that day who happened to be aware of an outstanding warrant for Peter's arrest. Peter had made the, the, the county's most wanted list for drug, drug trafficking and had unknowingly delivered drugs to an undercover cop some months before he committed his life to Jesus. As Peter told his testimony, he noticed an officer show up at the back of the room, then two, then ten. Peter concluded his testimony and was baptised. He emerged from the water confident of his new life in Christ. At that moment his hands were cuffed and he was taken out of the church dripping and off to prison. Peter looked over his shoulder as the police car drove away to see his brothers from the mission weeping on the church lawn. So things can get worse before they get better. It could be that the effects of things done to us of abuse, abuse perhaps when we were children um, where we have harboured the pain for years in secret the battle to speak out can intensify the pain of the original abuse knowing that we will have to revisit painful memories secondly God's deliverance or answer to a particular prayer may seem a long time coming and the cry of our heart is how long Lord that was David's cry, wasn't it, in Psalm 13 that I read. Yet underneath the cries, he was still trusting God and his character. God is not put out by Moses' complaint because it was done in relationship. And I believe God is offended when we complain to other people about him. God's not offended when we complain to him. It's part of our relationship to him. And in terms of waiting for, for prayer... 
I guess there will be many of you that still have unanswered prayer. You're still waiting for God to deliver. Right from when they were young, we, Joe and I, prayed for our boys and we particularly prayed that they will come to know Jesus for themselves. But um, when our eldest son, Kevin, um, was um, uh, 30, 43, um, when he was 43, um, by that time he had abandoned any interest in church and, and God as far as we knew. But at 43 he contracted uh, a brain tumour. But fortunately they were able to operate and uh, he was soon back from the hospital in London uh, and recovered very quickly. But unfortunately they said that this brain tumour was um, a, um, a primary cancer and it could well come back. And after two years it came back with a vengeance. And uh, he was in William Harvey Hospital, it was Good Friday, and Joe and I were about to visit him and we just knew that we just had to share the Lord with him and challenge him about salvation. And um, there he was waiting to go up to London for another operation which would only be palliative. Um, by this time he knew that this was terminal. Anyway, we, we made use of the fact that it was Good Friday. We talked to him about Good Friday and um, I just preached my heart out to him, really. And at the end of it, I said, Kev, what do you think you should do? And he said, I should repent. And uh, we could hardly believe it, really. And we, we led him to the Lord there, there and then. God had, God had answered even after that time. But we'd said in, often, how long, Lord? How long before that happens? Which brings us to the last point, which is similar to that one. That is, it's not wrong to question God when we're hurting and cry to him in anguish as long as we cry in faith as Jesus did. How we cope with the delay and setbacks and when things seem to get worse rather than better, um, when we've taken steps to deal with our past and, and try to work, walk in the freedom purchased for us will depend on, to a degree, whether we have confidence that God will fulfill what he has promised in due time. Let me leave you with some promises found in Paul's letter to the Romans. You might like to turn to chapter 8 of Romans. we close with this. The first verse is going to be verse 18. You, you probably know that um, Paul, who was a successful rabbi, um, once he became a Christian and a champion for Jesus, uh, he was sorely persecuted. And in um, 2 Corinthians chapter 11, he gives a list of things that have happened to him. Beatings, scourgings, stoning, imprisonment, uh, all sorts of terrible things that have happened to him. Um, just because he was a Christian, just because he was preaching Christ. But he says in verse 18, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed in us. God had revealed to Paul the wonders of eternal life and what was waiting for him. And that sustained him in these times. 
And then um, in verse 28, which many of you will know, and we know that for those who love God, all things work together for, the good, for good, for those who are called according to his purpose. He's not saying that all things are good. Many things are not good. But God in his sovereignty is able to work them for good, partly to make us more like Jesus, but also to work out things in our life that we never thought possible. And then in verse 31, what then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also, along with him, graciously give us all things? For Paul, the fact that God had given his son Jesus to be our saviour, that allowed him to suffer and die in that way. Paul is saying, if God loved us that much, why would he not give us all things? Why, why not, aren't all things ours? And then, um, just to close, he says, No, in all these things we are more than conquerors. Verse 31. Through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. I pray that, that we'll have that kind of confidence in the promises of God when things don't look pretty bright, all right? when things seem even more difficult and that God will sustain us in that. Let's just pray as we close. Father, thank you that you do know the plans that you have for us that plans for our welfare, for our good, plans for our prosperity. Thank, thank you, Father, for the fact that, Lord, you've given us a hope. Lord, I pray that your promises will sustain us as they sustain Paul, that we may view our present circumstances in the light of your promises. And Lord, whilst we thank you that we're free to be honest with you, and to talk to you and complain to you if necessary. Nevertheless, we pray that our trust in you may not waver. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.